0: Well, thank you. It's wonderful and a considerable um, honour uh, for me to be here at the Shepherds' Conference, and for uh, the invitation uh, extended to me to take part in this uh, conference uh, on inerrancy uh, by Dr. MacArthur. I I usually preach with two arms, and I do have another one. Uh, tucked away underneath. Uh, I thought I would say nothing about it, but then perhaps I should say something about it. Uh, I I received, I was the victim of the surgeon's knife uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, rotator cuff surgery and something else, something involving screws. And um, so forgive the appearance. My text, I've been given a text, a wonderful text. Uh, One of the two key texts on the doctrine of Scripture in the New Testament. Uh, My friend and colleague and and boss, uh, Ligan Duncan, had uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. And mine is 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 16 through 21. Turn with me in the Scriptures to 2 Peter Chapter 1 and at verse 16, this is God's inerrant word. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So far, God's holy and inerrant word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for Holy Scripture. We thank you for a Bible in our hands. In a language we can read and understand. We ask for your blessing as we seek to Expound it and understand it this afternoon. Help us, Lord, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. And all for Jesus' sake. Amen. John Wesley said, If there is one error... In the Bible, there might as well be a thousand. If there is one falsehood, it did not come from the God of truth. I believe that. I wasn't raised in a home where the Bible was read or studied. I did not possess a copy of the Bible. I was 18. I was a math physics major at university uh, reading Einsteinian physics theory of relativity LaGrange transformations and all the rest and then at 18 my best friend in high school sent me a copy of John Stott's basic Christianity told me to read it and I did and within two, three days of reading that book, I was on my knees asking the Lord to save me. I was an agnostic. I really hadn't given it much thought. But I've never read the Bible. The only Bible I knew was what was contained in John Stott's book and a text that came to me like a hammer, a sledgehammer. Come unto me, all ye that are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you... Rest. I believed the Bible to be the Word of God from from that moment onwards. I, I never really doubted it. It was the witness of God's Spirit with mine as to the veracity and truthfulness of the Bible. I went to seminary in the 1970s, Reformed Theological Seminary. I was there when Harold Glanzel's book, Battle of the Bible, came out. It was a required. Text in the doctrine of Scripture. What is the Bible? What is the Bible? Well, it's three quarters of a million words in Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, written by 40 different authors over a period of 1500 years. Poetry, parable, Sermons, letters, formal covenant treaties, travel narratives, architects' drawings, gospel, apocalyptic inventories, proverbs, songs, prayers, all of which requiring interpretive rules. History is history, parable is parable, proverb is proverb, apocalyptic is apocalyptic. All of it, God's breathed out theopneustic word. The breath of God. You sweet folks in California know absolutely nothing about this. But on a cold, frosty morning, when you breathe out, (laughs) you can see your breath. You have to take my word for it. Ligon's text, you know, it all blends into one after a while, but Ligon's text, whenever that was, one evening this week, but... But Ligan's text was was that. All scripture is theopneustos. It's, It's the breath that you can see when you breathe out. God breathes out and what have you got? Scripture. Peter is writing in the context of false teachers with immoral lives. Well nothing has changed much. So in that context three things. You're tired, you want dinner, you want a break. So I'm not going to be long. I am going to be to the right and I'm probably going to be near several hazards. But I'll try I'll try And this was a golfing injury from 20 years ago. (laughs) I kid you not. Three questions. What does Peter say the Bible is? Answer God's word written through human instrumentality. What is. What is the Bible? God's Word written through human instrumentality. Verse 21, men spoke from God. Men spoke. The the doctrine of organic inspiration. Using human agents. Men spoke. Men with diverse social backgrounds. Moses in Egypt. With a phenomenal Egyptian education. Isaiah. Isaiah. <laughs> With exquisite diction suited for the city of Jerusalem. Amos, a country boy from Tekoa, using rough and ready Hebrew with different temperaments. Sanguine, choleric, melancholic, phlegmatic. Think Solomon, think Paul, think John, think Jeremiah. Different temperaments. Paul always write about everything. With an opinion about everything. You can't imagine going up to Paul and saying, "Do you have an opinion about this?" I'm not sure. <laughs> Gospels. uh, The book of Kells. If you ever visit Ireland, go to Dublin, you you must see the book of Kells. One of the the great wonders of the world. Matthew was a a winged man. Mark as a lion. Luke as an ox. John as an eagle. With stylistic features. Isaiah. Isaiah transfixed by the vision of the holiness of God in the 6th chapter, referring to God as the Holy One of Israel more than the rest of the Old Testament put together. (laughs) Jeremiah's introspection. Think of Jeremiah chapter 20. You go to Jeremiah and you say, what's your favorite passage of Scripture, Jeremiah. What's the passage that you've memorized? Job chapter 3. I wish I had never been born. <laughs> Cursed be the day on which, on which the midwife says it's a boy. He memorized Job chapter 3. But Paul's pleonastic long, 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 sentences with extensive relative and causal clauses and participial construction that's Paul (laughs) using very ordinary sources the chronicler referring to the chronicles of Samuel the seer Or, or, or Luke with eyewitness, careful, historical reporting, very, very much mimicking Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian Wars. The opening being almost identical. The influence of ancient Near Eastern style on various authors of the Old Testament how, how we can identify certain Bible authors with certain themes when you think, when you think of Ezekiel you think of the glory of, of, of God when you think of Paul you think of union with Christ what's that saying Th- that revelation is not Flat, but, but progressive and, and, and developmental. Even within individual authors. You, you think of Paul when he writes Galatians, combative, a young man. It's a young man's writing. It's like Spurgeon in those early New Park Street sermons, he's fighting Arminians on every page. And then the more sophisticated Victorian style of his latter sermons. Compare Galatians to Second Timothy. How how Paul has grown twenty years of ministry. He hasn't changed one theological bone in his body, but he writes differently. Or Second Peter and First Peter. You know when I was at seminary one of the seniors preached a sermon on the authorship of 2nd Peter <laughs> Boring <laughs> Answer Peter But, but why is First Peter different from Second Peter? Because in First Peter he uses an amanuensis, uh, Silvanus, and Second Peter he may have used a different amanuensis, or it may be Peter himself. End of story. <laughs> men, what's my point? Men, <laughs> men wrote the Bible, and you can see them and, and, and hear them with their personalities and, and backgrounds. Now, much is made of this in our time requiring this conference. Because the conclusion is drawn that err is human. But it proves too much. Because there isn't a part of Scripture that isn't human. Every jot and tittle of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is written down by humans it comes through the vehicle, through the instrumentality of human beings you can't you can't employ the principle that to err is human and think that you can apply that simply to one or two or three issues in the Bible, if to err is human then the whole Bible errs second question how is the Bible written through human instrumentality and Peter says a number of things here in verse 20 he says knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation now that was translated differently in the King James version for example as a statement about perspicuity that no no scripture is to be interpreted by one individual as a statement about perspicuity. That scripture needs to be interpreted by the magisterium of the Church of Rome, for example. But but uh, but but this the ESV translation, I think, is the, is is the better translation here. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes; it's about origin. Where does where does Scripture come from? Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, from someone having made it up, from someone having sat down and and said to himself, I have a good thought here that I need to write down. It didn't arise, first of all, from men's minds. Even though every part of Scripture is through the instrumentality of, of men. Men Wrote men wrote Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and John and Paul and Peter, but it didn't arise first of all from men's minds. No, no prophecy verse, verse twenty. No prophecy of Scripture, verse twenty-one. For no prophecy is 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 Peter alluding here to specific prophecies in the Old Testament relating to Jesus, because He's spoken of the Incarnation and, and, and of the, the, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, the, 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 the moment when the Father speaks to the Son on the Mount of, uh, on, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Is he, is he referring to specific prophecies in the Old Testament, or is He referring to prophecy here as, as a reference to the entirety of the Old Testament? And you could go either way. Even if you take the narrower interpretation that he's referring here, this is a statement not about the entirety of the Old Testament, but about, but about specific prophecies in the Old Testament. The point that he's making is that these prophecies are part of Scripture. Holy Scripture. And what is true of these prophecies is true because they are Scripture no prophecy verse twenty one was ever produced produced enenko he 's talking about source it 's it 's the same word that 's used in verse seventeen about about the voice of the Heavenly Father that Jesus heard. That voice was heavenly. Its source wasn't from this world. It was, it was, it was heavenly. And he's saying, the, he's saying the same thing here about Scripture. And then in verse 21, men spoke from God as they were carried along. As they were carried along. As they were born along. Pheromenoi. Same same verb that is used in Acts 27 when, when Paul is shipwrecked. And you remember Luke describes in some vivid de- detail how they, they lowered the mainsail to allow the ship to be driven along by the wind. The, the entirety of the motion of that ship it has nothing to do with the people in the boat. It has everything to do with the wind carrying along that boat. That's the, that's the verb that is used here. Men spoke, men wrote, and their personalities can be seen. But in such a way that they were driven along. They were born along, carried along. To write what God intends them to write. To produce what God designed them to produce. To accomplish God's divine will and purpose so that Scripture is God's word in men's mouths. God's word on the end of men's pens or quills. So that when Scripture speaks, God speaks. Now that gives rise to the question, is this, is this a statement affirming dictation? That the manner of God's sovereignty in bearing along, carrying along men in the production of Scripture is of such a sovereignty that the manner in which that is accomplished is dictation. And the answer to that is no and yes at times it was dictation the 10 commandments for example the seven letters of jesus to the church in asia minor in revelation 2 and 3 they were dictated to john they were dictated to moses but sometimes sometimes men wrote with Alarming, astonishing informality. The writer of Hebrews says in one place in chapter 2, it has been testified somewhere. Like preachers who sudden, suddenly can't remember the exact location, but, but this is what the Bible says somewhere. It says this. <laughs> and we may ask the question, how can God, how can God overrule and superintend fallible human beings to accomplish his divine will and purpose to bring about an inerrant scripture by a doctrine of providence is the answer. By a doctrine of providence. Because it's in the same league as the relationship between God and human beings in accomplishing His will in every other category of life. So that nothing happens without God willing it to happen, and nothing happens without God willing it to happen before it happens and in the way that it happens. And what you have here is a doctrine of absolute and total sovereignty in the accomplishment of Scripture. And that denials of inerrancy are in the end, but what are they? They are eruptions of pride in rebellion to the notion of the sovereignty of God in the life of a human being. So what is the Bible? It is God's Word written through human instrumentality. How is the Bible, God's Word, through human instrumentality? By the sovereign superintendence of God at every stage from conception to completion so that what the result is, is exactly what God intends. The Bible is as God intends it to be. So a third question, to what extent can we be certain that the Bible is God's Word written? Men spoke from God. That's the Bible's view of itself. He's speaking. Peter is speaking here, first of all, about the Old Testament. He's talking about prophecy contained in Holy Scripture, meaning the Old Testament. But you only have to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter addresses some of Paul's writings, some of which contain things that are hard to be understood. I love that. I love that. I, I, I really don't know what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians about women's head covering. I've read gazillions of things about it. But I'm, I'm still puzzled as to the precise nature of what he is saying. There are some things in Paul that are hard to be understood. Which, which, which some people, Peter says, rest as they do the other scriptures. And you see what Peter is doing? He's putting some of Paul's writings now on a par, on the same level. There's a, there's a principle here of the recognition of canonicity within the lifetime of the apostles. Peter is already saying that the church recognizes the authority of Paul's writings because, because they're on the same level as other scriptures of the Old Testament. What is the Bible? God's word. Three quarters of a million words. And the issue that you and I are facing today is what is sometimes referred to as the adequacy of human language to convey divine truth. Because postmodern. Sociology, or late modern sociology, and the study of language and linguistics suggests that language is an evolutionary uh, product that grows from grunts and groans to, to something else, but it's a fluid notion and that language itself words are inadequate to to hold and maintain something as large a concept as divine truth and peter is saying when you read the bible you read divine truth here's the way we get to that god speaks If I can borrow from Kant. The noumena perforates into the phenomena. Something of the other world perforates into this world. God speaks. And it gets through. And... and, and we get it because we're made in His image. Genesis 1:26 and 27. We are made in the image of God. We have the capacity, the innate capacity to understand the truth. It gets, it gets to us. We may hold it down in unrighteousness. But divine truth gets through. But if I'm asked, why do I believe the Bible to be the Word of God? Jesus. It's like the children's address. You know, the answer is God sin or Jesus. And the answer here is Jesus. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. He, he is divine and human, two natures in one person. There's only one There's only one Him. So when when Jesus speaks, the second person of the Trinity speaks. When He spoke to His disciples, divine words, words originating from the second person of the Trinity is being spoken. The, The Bible is God's Word in men's mouths. scripture therefore can be trusted and everything to which it speaks however incidental do you notice in the new testament the incidental details that are picked up matthew 12:42 the queen of the south visited solomon it's an incidental little little historical fact Mentioned in the Old Testament, but it's 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 picked up in the New Testament as the Word of God. Or or Mark chapter two and verse twenty-five that David ate of the consecrated bread. Or John three fourteen that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Or in Hebrews seven that Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils to Melchizedek. Or Second Peter two sixteen that Balaam's ass spoke. Actually you see it I think so wonderfully in Matthew 22 and in Mark 12 when Jesus and the Gospels citing Jesus refers to the authorship of Psalm 110 as, as being David. It's that, it's that little superscription which for some reason we, we are nervous about reading. And, and and Jesus cites the superscription of Psalm 110 as, as saying that Psalm 110 is of Davidic authorship. When, when David says, the Lord said to my Lord, now if it was some other lesser person than David, it wouldn't make any sense. It only makes sense if the superscription to Psalm 110 is true. That the my Lord here is in fact a reference to Jesus. The Father speaking to the second person of the Trinity. My Lord saying, saying to the Lord saying to my Lord. Now those who are saying today... That the Bible is divinely spirated and is as God intends it to be, a text reflecting human authorship with all of the typos and errors that human authorship suggests. Peter is saying, every part of Scripture, Scripture as Scripture. Men wrote as they were born along and carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's not just, you see, it's not just a hundred percent human and a hundred percent God. I was a math major, that doesn't make sense. (laughs) The relationship between the human author and the divine author is not symmetrical. Just as the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility in a text like Philippians 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. 100% you and 100% God. We're not comparing apples with apples here. What is your 100% in comparison to the 100% of God? So that the relationship here between the human authorship and the divine authorship is asymmetrical. The point I think that Peter is trying to make here is that you can trust, that you can trust the Bible. Now notice the context in which it is given. He talks about about the incarnation. We did not back in verse 16 we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Peter is saying He's talking about the incarnation and he's talking about the mount of transfiguration and he's saying about the mount of transfiguration I was there. I had one of those, uh, those uh, creepy moments uh, last night when uh, Mark Dever referred to having known Stephen, uh, Stephen Hawking. You know, that he'd bumped into him on several occasions. I, I, I was kind of blown away by it. This extraordinary man. Okay, I thought he was showing off. <laughs> My my dear friend, Sinclair Ferguson, who's sitting down here, has this story about uh, having spent the weekend with the Queen. I I need to rephrase that. As as one of his duties as uh, a minister uh, then in the Church of Scotland... uh, I don't know how this is done, whether it was a ballot or... or but Her Majesty evidently called him up and said, Sinclair, um, I need you to come to Balmoral for the weekend. And uh, he can tell you the story, but he loves to tell the story. <laughs> he's um, he's kind of modest about it. <laughs> not, not, as my daughter would say. I don't have that story. I, I, wish I, could, I wish I could tell that story. That I've spent the weekend in Balmoral Castle with the Queen. I've, I've, he's had a barbecue with the Queen. He has. He's told me many times. Well... Peter has a story that trumps Mark Dever and Sinclair (laughs) Ferguson. Who hasn't thought here at Christmas time? You know, who hasn't thought on a Christmas Eve? I would love to have been there. I would have loved to have been in in the manger area, in, in that whatever it was, that inn. Just 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 in the background, you know, nothing nothing like having a barbecue with the Queen, but just 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 in the background, no, nobody notices. But just just to see it with my own eyes, the baby Jesus lying in the manger. Who who wouldn't want to be? on the mountain with with the three disciples and peter and james and john and 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 something something happens to the physical body of jesus that it 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 there's something transcendent that happens that that there's a there's a glory there's a shining the majesty of God comes down, and there's a, there's a voice from, from heaven that speaks, an audible voice. This is my son, and I love him. You know, what were you, what were you doing last week? Well, I was on the mountain with Jesus. <laughs> But you see Peter's point—it's staggering, my friends. You see Peter's point. Verse nineteen: We have the prophetic word made more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Peter isn't saying, you know, the, the the way the way to be certain is for you to see what I saw. You need a vision, my friend. You need a baptism of the Holy Spirit that's going to take you out of this world. Like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. And what does Peter say? You have all the certainty that you need right here in the Holy Scriptures. Which, verse 19... You will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. A lamp that he spoke about this morning. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. A reference to Numbers 24 and Balaam's, uh, one of Balaam's final oracle. What happens after night? Dawn comes. And uh, this is probably a reference to the end, the second coming, the end. So what have you got until Jesus comes again to give you certainty and assurance and conviction and to help you through all of life's trials and difficulties? the Bible, to which you will do well to pay attention. Oh, dear fellow pastors, I was so convicted by Ligon's message this week. I have such a propensity in my heart. Change my view of the Bible to accommodate my sins. Heresy brings immorality, but immorality also brings heresy. Are you tempted in your exposition to take the softer line? Because your conscience condemns you and your heart condemns you. You will do well to pay attention to the authority and trustworthiness and infallibility and inerrancy of Holy Scripture. It's all you've got, and it's all you need. So, as we've heard a number of times now this week, what do I need on Sunday morning or Sunday evening? Or Wednesday evening. Oh, when someone comes with horrendous problems and difficulties, looking for a word of comfort and reassurance and stability. And Peter says, you have this book. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You have the Bible. You know, what was it Luther said that we heard this week? I did nothing. God did it all. To have that confidence, that assurance and what the Bible is, and what the Bible can do in the lives of men and women. So here's our, here's our charge. What does Paul say? I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So preach the word. All of it. read it I love the fact that Mark Dever read Psalm 119 I have to confess to you I have to confess to you round about verse 3 I thought to myself surely he's not going to read the whole psalm (laughs) oh tell me you didn't think that He could have just read that psalm and sat down. It would have been a lesson in itself. The extent to which we actually believe that every word of Psalm 119 is fire. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for that moment in our lives when we first came to trust it. Thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that inward testimony of the Holy Spirit, convicting us, convincing us, as to the inerrant nature of Scripture. Forgive us for times when to accommodate our sins. We have not lived up to that conviction. Grant us repentance, we pray. And oh, that we might be enabled to say at the end of this conference, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation, day and night. So hear us, Lord, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.